everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm the author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, Spencer Martin. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. He's joining us away from his usual rig. He's in an undisclosed location somewhere along the western coast of the United States. Andrew, do you want to give a brief explanation of your podcast before we get in? Plug that a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to. And Spencer, thank you being for being discreet with my location. You do need a gamma level security clearance to know my current whereabouts, but I am on a top secret mission out here on the West Coast. Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how hard things build stronger, more resilient humans who have more fun. And I would love for you all to come check it out. We're on all the platforms where you love to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at choosethehardway.com and at hardwaypod on social. Next week, we're going to be dropping an episode with Jason McCarthy. He's a former Green Beret, the founder of GORUCK and the founder of a new company, Sandlot, which is a social fitness, social health company doing some interesting things. So it's a it's a great conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing it with the world. Man, can't wait to listen to that. I highly recommend checking it out. Today, we're going to talk about our Gravel Worlds in depth. Um, it's kind of funny because there's a race on Saturday. Gravel Worlds men's is on Sunday. Saturday is the tour of, or I guess, Il Lombardia is the name of it now. Giro di Lombardia is what it used to be called. Big race around Lake Como could be the other name. Uh, one of my, I mean, it's like my favorite things in the world, Lake Como, one of my favorite places, season, fall, terrain, mountains. I love all those things. Um, I, I love this race in theory. It falls a little bit flat for me in reality, but we'll talk. It's like a lot of good riders like Tade Pogacar is here. Um, Enric Mas, Alejandro Valverde, Vincenzo Nibali, Alexander Vlasov. We'll talk about that for a second and then get into Gravel Worlds, which is actually pretty close to it on Sunday. People probably could have doubled up on this. I, I would love to get your thoughts on like why Matthew Vanderpool is that, I guess, is, an, is it an amateur event? I'm not quite sure what we're calling the Gravel World Championships instead of a monument, one of the biggest one-day races in the world. So I would love to get your thoughts on that. Andrew, what? just tell us right off the top, which race are you more excited for this weekend? I'm really excited for Gravel Worlds, and it's been interesting to see how it's been getting covered. We'll get into some of the aspects of what's been hampering journalists, in particular that the Sturt list was not released until I think two days ago. I know last week we could not access the Sturt list, so it was uh, an undercover. It was a clandestine Sturt list. They were keeping things top secret. Now that that Sturt list is out, I think that this is a pivotal, a pivotal moment not just in the history of gravel cycling, but I think in cycling generally. I don't think I'm overstating that. I think this is a really big moment in the history of the sport. So that's where my attention is. What about you, Spencer? What are you amped for? I thought, well, yeah, I, it's like I'm like coming to terms with my own feelings live on the podcast. Probably gravel worlds more. I don't know. This is, it's hard to admit, but when this was announced, it's like, I'll give a brief, brief history of gravel if you don't know what the heck that is. Um, I, long story short, roads in Kansas are dangerous and not great to ride on. There's a lot of gravel roads. A bunch of crazy people started riding the long distance, long distances on gravel. They met in Emporia one year to do like a 200 mile long loop slash like race. There was like eight people. They're like, wow, this is pretty cool. You can ride around and you're not going to get hit by a car and 
you see new things. The race got bigger and bigger and bigger. Andrew did it multiple times. I think finished second twice in the 100-mile edition. Um, it's ballooned. Like You would call it a, definitely like grassroots growth. Like There's no, at least in the beginning, no commercial pressure on this. It was just people putting on races and like, like a stunning amount of people showing up. Like it's hard to do. Like if there was probably eight people at the first unbound gravel and now you have to sign up in the first 10 minutes that it's online or you won't get a spot. Same thing all over the country, just these massively popular events. The, the big appeal probably is that you can just show up. You do not have to be a professional. You can sign up, roll up, race, there might be a defending world champion there and Peter Sagan, you know, it's like you never, it's like everyone's racing together. I like to think of it. It's if you, do you, have you seen breaking away? You must've seen breaking away, Andrew. Of course. And like, so the Italian, pro, like that Italian protein, Cinzano, Bloomington, Indiana, and he's just racing with them. And there's like, everyone's racing together. I always thought that was cool. And it's kind of a return to that, like pure American style, just show up and race. Um, that was, I guess, happening in the 60s and 70s. I wasn't alive then. I don't know. But it, it's it's been like non, it's like a non-professional event that professionals could come to. It's getting more and more professional. Like, for example, Unbound was won by like an ex-road pro Dutch guy who beat all like the privateer Americans who like have content brands around racing gravel. So that was like the first trinkles of like, huh, this might be becoming a more professionalized sport. Gravel World Championships is announced. I'm not a big fan of the UCI. I don't really see what value they bring to racing in any way. It's like, oh, this is like just a way for them to make money off a of popular discipline. It's not open to the public. So immediately I'm just like turned off. I'm like, oh, whatever. Matthew Vanderpool is going to be beating a bunch of random European gravel racers. I'm not interested. And then I saw the start list and I'm in. I'm very excited. Um, Matthew Vanderpool's there, the biggest name probably, but there's good pros here, like really good pros. And the course is flat enough that Vanderpool's not just going to be able to like put it in turbo mode and drop everyone on short hills. I mean, I think this is going to be a really competitive race. I'm, I'm excited to watch it. The only thing I'm worried about is if the coverage sucks, like if the, the video is not great. I mean, have you seen any of these precursors to this event? Like how has the video coverage been? Yeah, the streaming of the one race that I saw, which was won by an Astana rider, I believe. And yeah, I believe it was Alexi Lutsenko. I watched a race that he did last year. It was the Serenissima gravel race. The production was fantastic. It was way better than the Road World's coverage that we saw recently, which was almost indecipherable, like a lot of coverage of road cycling. And Spencer, I, I really enjoyed your overview of gravel racing. I think that's pretty spot on. And I think part of what's happening right now is this is similar to what snowboarding went through when it was included in the Olympics. Same thing with skateboarding went through this recently. There's always this battle over the heart and soul of the sport versus the competitive side of the sport. If you look at skateboarding, when Rob Deerdeck created Street League, there was some blowback to that, but I think because of the manner in which Rob approached it and the financial opportunity it created for pro skaters who were really competition oriented, it, it did professionalize that side of the sport. 
at the same time, people could still still go out, film, do video parts, be all about the heart and soul of the sport, not about the competitive side, and go make a living that way. I think what's interesting about what's, or one of the things that's interesting about what's happening with gravel racing, because I think that there are a lot of different threads to pull on here, is that in a lot of ways, as you mentioned, Spencer, the, there are these former professional riders from the world tour, from different disciplines, domestic, you know, in the domestic racing scene, people coming from road racing, which as we know is pretty much dead in the United States now, Criterium racing, which while it's gotten a lot of attention, it's also just a tiny, tiny number of people compete in Criterium racing in America. I know I'm quite interested in it, but I don't think that it commands a lot of attention within the space of people who are core cycling fans and have interest in the competitive side of the sport. So you have all of these highly talented elite level athletes competing in gravel. And it's almost as if they want to be on like the free free ride side of skateboarding or snowboarding, where it's really just about the lifestyle. I think the differentiator is going and doing a gravel race. Like we talked about last time, if you were a professional or elite athlete and you go line up at an event where there's a start line, there's a finish line, somebody's going to win and you're going to get some level of status is really the highest benefit a rider can get out of winning a race like Unbound, for example. It can be a life-changing event. It can, it's not going to, they're not going to get filthy rich off of it, but they can make a pretty decent living if they put together the right combination of content and sponsors. And on the other hand, we have the just fully competitively oriented world of UCI gravel worlds that uh, is going to go down this weekend. And looking at the start list, there are hitters in this race. There's never been a gravel race with this level of talent before. And if the level of talent that is going to be in the world championship race this weekend showed up at Unbound, for example, I think we'd see a really, really different set of results than we've seen in the past. We're getting truly elite talent at the very top of the sport today, now competing at gravel. And I think it's going to get interesting. Well, yeah, just as an example, you mentioned Alexi Lusinko won that race you're watching. He's going to be there at gravel worlds. I mean, he was the guy who was, he was the last man standing with Remco Evenepoel at the world road race championships recently. I mean, he's an unbelievably strong rider and I, I don't know. I haven't looked to see if there's betting odds on this. I bet he's not even a favorite for this race. Like that's how deep the field is here. I mean, for example, also Ivar Skilk, uh, he's the guy who won Unbound this year. And everyone was like, who the heck is Ivar Skilk? Uh, a Dutch rider who's been racing, I bet, unbelievably hard second and third division races in Europe for probably 10 years. And Unbound was probably not the hardest race he ever did. But uh, as you said, I bet that was the biggest boost to his career like financially and publicity wise um a lot more people know who he is now than after than before he won that race so it just shows there is quite a bit on the line even though you might not look at the prize purses and think oh this is like a career making thing the publicity that comes along with it is really significant i i do want to ask you about like is part of you sad that we're just it's like gravel made it like your baby is now famous and it's probably going to be dominated by 
I think Betsy Welsh or uh, from Vela News called it. I thought this was a little mean, like no name euros versus like Americans that we know. Um, you just want to be like a little sensitive with like xenophobia or just because they're like Europeans that you don't know doesn't mean that they're not good cyclists. Uh, but this part of you like sad that it's just going to be dominated by, I don't know, potentially Matthew Vanderpool or Alexi Lutsenko or Magnus Court Nielsen, guys who already have uh, suit like careers on the road. No, not at all. I, I think it's a bit naive to be sad about this. Honestly, the the teleology of things that become popular is that over time they become corporatized, they become professionalized. Their governing bodies, like in the case of skateboarding, you get the IOC involved with skateboarding, with snowboarding, and you want to talk about an issued organization, there you go. Like, there's one for you, the UCI. People have a lot of issues with the UCI as well. And yeah, it just seems like an inevitability. You know, if you like sub pop records in 1988, I'm sure that you were pretty disappointed and 1991 or 1992 when all those bands blew up and were all over the radio but there's a reason that things that people love and create a lot of cultural excitement eventually become loved by exponentially more people and just because there are uci gravel worlds this weekend does not mean that you can't continue to have events like the ones that i've talked about before the main gravel series that i got to participate and where I live in mid coast, Maine over the summer where, you know, 50 to 70 riders show up, you get a GPS track. There aren't really rules you're riding on terrain that maybe a, a bike doesn't belong on with grass growing up to your handlebars on snowmobile tracks in the middle of the summer. I mean, if you want those experiences, they're, they're out there. Like you can go get them. They're all over the place. They're not the ones that you're reading about in different cycling outlets or the new york times but there's a there's a tension or paradox here because people want to preserve this spirit of gravel but at the same time they also desperately want the status that comes with being the very best within the context of the constellation of races that are now globally popular that are within this kind of spirit of gravel gravel 1.0 system so things like unbound mid-south sbt gravel uh i mean lifetime has taken over a lot of these races like the crusher and the tusher is that what the one in utah is called i think that's what it's called that was like one of the original ones right so you have all of these races and then you have the uci races i do have i have a lot of questions for you spencer about the the event this weekend in particular taking a look at the course profile i know that we were both trying to learn a bit more than just looking at the static 2D image, trying to poke around on Google Street View to see if we could learn a bit more about it. But looking at the technical specifications for the event, I mean, this event looks like it's less than 50% off-road from what I can tell, or it's it's more than 50% off-road, but of that percentage, it sounds like 20 to 25% of it is really hard packed surface, which is typically not the case, except it's something like Belgian waffle ride. So it doesn't look like uh, a technically demanding gravel course, 
So a lot of the happenstance that you see on a race like Unbound, where you'll be riding along in a group and part of the attrition that happens is, oh, you know, like you're plugging along at 25 miles an hour going down a hill and suddenly a giant pothole you didn't see eats your wheel because the rider in front of you moves out of the way at the last minute. So there's, there's a lot of that that just knocks people out of races like Unbound, Mid-South. SBT gravel is a bit different from what I've heard from people who've raced it and from reading about it, the gravel's a bit more manicured there. But this UCI race, this is going to be quite smooth relative to a lot of gravel races. It's relatively short. This isn't a challenging distance for world tour level cyclists. So it's almost more towards the criterium end of the spectrum. It also doesn't have a lot of vert. I think the main loop, I think, and Spencer, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's about 800 meters of climbing. And what did we see at the world championship? Nearly 4,000 like meters. 4,000. Lombardia yeah. on Saturday has 5,000 meters of climbing. So it is kind of flat. I don't, I, I'm going to defer to the organizers because they know the region better than I do. It's kind of odd because it is in such a hilly slash mountainous region. You can, there's a lot of, I've been lost before, uh, probably along the course and had to get back home and had to climb a lot and was bonking and I'll never forget that ride. So it's almost like they're going around vertical gain, but maybe they have a theory that it's going to be so fast and and even though it's hard packed, fast gravel, that it will break the race up quite a bit. And they didn't want to make it just like an absolute destroyer of the Peloton. They wanted to keep some sort of, I don't know, pack mentality going, but I'm willing to like watch it before I make a judgment. I did, I did think it was strange that there wasn't more elevation gain though, especially in a country kind of known it's hard to find any flat kilometers in italy so it's it's a little weird and the uci historically doesn't have a super high regard for the safety of riders when designing these courses taking a look at the i don't know how you pronounce this but is it the crow race the croatian stage race that just happened oh yeah the yeah i guess the tour of croatia they maybe call it the crow race now uh, yeah, not very safe. I, I, I don't think the UCI is out there designing courses. They're supposed to be signing off on the safety of them. I suspect they don't look at it. I mean, because think how much work that would take. You get submitted a map of a course in Croatia and you're a bureaucrat in Switzerland. They're probably just like, yeah, this looks good. Sign it off. Send it out. I don't think right. they really, I don't, I don't have any information on this. I don't think they really look into it at all. And you get some pretty dangerous courses because of that. That's maybe one of the most dangerous courses that I've seen. I frankly couldn't believe they raced it. I, I thought that was really bad. I, I, do you remember like, have you done like alley cat races before? Yeah. 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 It was similar to that where you're just racing on open roads in cities, uh, I've, I, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that in a professional race. That was, that was quite bad. Yeah, it was closer to a Lucas Brunel video than a World Tour race, that's for sure. It was pretty nuts, but, you know, looking at the, the course this weekend, it looks like relatively safe for a gravel race, and it doesn't look very s selective. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen here like i'm not sure what's going to decide the race typically it's choke points on the course where you go from pavement into rough gravel from rough gravel into single track they're not allowed to have 
single track in these UCI sanctioned gravel races. So that won't be one of the course features. And yeah, I'm just not really sure what's going to happen because there's not a lot of vert. It's not a super long race. And that's a race like Unbound, for example. It does have quite a bit of climbing in aggregate. It's over 10,000 feet of climbing and, you know, over 200 miles. But really, it's just it's the distance and the wind is absolutely brutal in Kansas, as Spencer could tell you. I would say, yeah, I mean, there's no worse conditions you can ever ride your bike in than Kansas. I mean, it is a brutal, brutal place. Uh, I, I do think this is kind of interesting as gravel gets exported to Europe, which generally has much easier gravel, less wind, just like more infrastructure design. They probably take care of their gravel roads a little bit better. If people are disappointed that it's not as, I mean, I, I lived in Kansas, like my whole childhood, I never really rode gravel on my road bike. Cause it's that rough. It's like really, really, it's like, they just like chip vaguely chip boulders apart and then lay them down on a road. And then that's the gravel road. Um, this is going to be a lot, a lot smoother than that, but I, I don't know if you're familiar with Perry tours, which used to be an important race, like a one day classic. It also is on the same day as gravel worlds, which is October 9th. And it was like a non-selective. It would kind of be like a sprint, like Tom Boone and Philippe Gilbert would be sprinting for the win along this famous boulevard and tours. They added to try to like keep up with the times. They added gravel sections, but they're not, they're called like plug streets. They're not really, really tough gravel. And it really broke the race up a lot. Like if you watch recent editions of Perry Tours, even though there's not a ton of elevation gain and the gravel roads are pretty mild, it's shocking how much it breaks it up. So even though we're looking at this profile and it's flat-ish and, or I mean, not flat-ish, very flat, and the gravel sections are mild, I bet I bet it breaks up pretty, pretty early, especially with it's 200 kilometers, which means the speed is going to be so high, like unbelievably high the entire time. So I think it's going to be pretty hard and pretty yeah, and So Spencer, I'm looking at the women's start list for the elite race and many of the top gravel rate of the top American women's gravel racers pros will be at this race. So we have, uh, Lauren De Crescenzo is there. Sarah Sturm. Who else do we have? Uh, Emily Newsom, and then from Argentina, but based in the United States, Sofia Gomez Villafane is there. Who you know won Cape Epic, uh, won Unbound, and in the men's race, we don't really see any of the top American gravel pros. And I get the sense from reading coverage of this race that the American gravel racers are kind of boycotting this event. But my sense is they know that they would just get waxed if they showed up at this race and have absolutely no chance of winning, even the very top people. And it almost would be embarrassing if you're like a top gravel pro in the United States, you show up at this event and just get destroyed. What do you think? It's an interesting theory. I, I was noticing the women's, I mean, uh, Sofia Gomez, well, I'll just stop there. I don't want to butcher her last name. Probably the best, I would say like best all around gravel racer in the world. Like she's going to do gr- great. She might win the event. Sarah Sturm's really good. Lauren DiCrescenzo, really good. I, they're going to be competing for the win here. On the men's side, 
uh, yeah, as you say, I don't think, I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed. Like I would have liked to see how well Keegan Swenson does. I mean, he proved at world's road race that he was like capable. He had the engine to stay with the top, top riders in the world. I mean, I don't know, maybe he would have done okay, but as you say, I think it would have been a bit of a bloodbath with everybody else. And yeah, I guess that's bad for your brand. I'm a little surprised though. There's not more, if you're a professional gravel racer, shouldn't this be a big target for you? I, I don't quite under, I, I understand they don't want to get waxed in front of everybody, but I'm a little surprised that there's not more representation from, from the top American riders. I mean, like one of the only names I recognize is like Griffin Easter. Cause he used to race in a lot of the same races as me, which isn't a great sign. And then like Matt Stevens, who was like a good road racer in the Midwest. And he was like one of the first kind of really fast guys on gravel. Like, I don't know if you remember the drop bar or the arrow bar drama where his team, it was a good idea. Like they would just come out, like they came out to Colorado for an early season race and raced on arrow bars and crushed everybody and everybody complained about it. But you know, that was like five generations ago in gravel. So I, I was a little disappointed in the U S representation. And I, I guess you're right. I would buy that theory from you that they don't want to get crushed, but I don't know. I think you got to line up and try. I understand Keegan, Keegan had like a big travel to Australia, back to the U.S., probably wants to defend his lifetime lead because that is a For lot sure. of money. So that's yeah. probably why he's not here. But I'm a little surprised, though, and disappointed. Well, and taking a look at the Australia Worlds, all of these riders probably had to pay their way, although I'm wondering if some of these Team USA riders it sounds like they're not at the beginning of their careers, but I'm wondering if USA cycling kicked in anything to get these riders over there or if they had to pay their own way, man, I would be, that's a good question. Do you, man, I, I would be shocked if USA cycling is putting any resources into this, but it is a, it's a UCI event i don't know it's a good question it's a uci world championship so i i guess they would consider that internally on par with like a mountain bike world championship where they must contribute something to the team usa um i don't know yeah it's a good question i hadn't thought about it i mean you do wonder like do you even know how how did these slots come about like does each country i don't know yeah now i'm i'm Maybe, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I can't imagine just, I mean, maybe, maybe like Griffin Easter is like, well, I just, I got a cheap ticket to Europe. It's not going to cost me that much money. I'm just going to fly over and do this cool race. And that, how cool of a story is that? You know, it, it's the biggest race most of these guys will ever do because you're racing against like the best riders in the, in the world uh, on some level where you have Vanderpool, Litsenko, Magnus Court. I mean, those are guys who could win, all could win multiple stages at any Tour de France or any Grand Tour. Miguel Angel Lopez. Yeah, that's nuts. I cannot believe he's in this race. Did you, I, he's, for people who don't know, I mean, he's like a climbing specialist who just came off, I guess, a pretty good, I don't know, maybe not a pretty good, but he was at the Vuelta and he was in the mix often. Uh, like Grand Tour specialist. Yeah. And he's in, now he's in a gravel race with very little climbing. I, I don't understand what happened there. Uh, maybe he just lives in the region and he wants to get a good solid ride in on Sunday. I don't understand that at all. 
Well, and gosh, this uh, now that we have the start list, this is so intriguing. There are just so many, so many layers to this. I'm noticing that Nicholas Roach is on here. I know, as well. He's commentator for GCN. I think he was the commentator I watched during the tour. And right. Then, so he's coming off the bench for this. I guess I, that that stuck out to me as well when I was going through this list. I was like, Nico Roach from GCN. I mean, maybe he's just got the bug. He's been sitting in the booth watching everybody race. He wants to do it. That also could be a, another situation of he lives in the area and he's like, hey, I'm riding on Sunday. Might as well be in the race. But how does he, I don't understand how he qualified. Has he done any gravel races before in his life? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm, yeah, I don't know how it works. And did you see, I'm, I want to triple check this. I'm looking at the men's, because in addition to the pro world championships, an interesting thing that they're doing here is they're running elite age group world championships at the same time, which I guess this incentivizes all of the age groupers out there having a shot at qualifying for a legit UCI world championship. Because to take cyclocross, for example, there is a master's world championship. I don't know how deep you got into cyclocross spencer but in the bay area for example where we had a lot of former pros as you do in boulder that was a really big deal we had people like justin robinson and others who had been pro cyclocross racers and then were continuing to pursue trying to win national titles and then world championship titles but cyclocross masters world championships is a completely different thing it's not held concurrently with the pro elite yeah yeah it's like yeah, so but what the UCI has done here with Gravel Worlds, they're running the pro race and then they have this age group aspect to it. So it's almost more of an Ironman type of setup, which you know, it's can't believe we're talking about that on this podcast. What I'm trying to confirm here though is I believe that yeah, there he is, number 543 representing Kazakhstan in the men's 45 to 49. No. Age group, way. Alexander Vinokurov. No way. Oh, who I believe my. is an Ironman age group world champion as well. This guy. Now I'm excited. If I wasn't excited before, now I am very excited. He might. We can't rule him out. Are they racing them all together? Like, do you all They're start? not. If they did, I could see Vino coming off the bench and, and cleaning up and taking the pro title. He would be breaking off a couple, a couple hundies in the group. Just making friends. <laughs> For those yeah. who don't know, Alexander Vinokurov, I think it's somewhat of a bad rap. He's a bit of an enigma. Um, Kazakh writer, I guess, ethnically Russian, uh, was very fun r- racer to watch back in the Lance era. And then he famously, I guess the, the case got dismissed by a judge, but he was in a breakaway with a, a writer at Liege Best on Liege. And he wins. The guy doesn't win. Vinokurov wins. The guy doesn't really contest the race. Later, it came out that Vinokurov transferred him $150,000, like shortly after the race. You can connect the dots. And then at the 2012 Olympics, uh, where Britain worked so hard, they talked about their plan for like four weeks in the press about how Mark Cavendish was going to win this race. Vinokurov attacks, um, gets away with Iran, who just is looking the wrong way. And then Vinokurov attacks and wins the race. I have my doubts about. Uh, I would. I would also like to look at Iran's incoming uh, 
bank account, what what was incoming to his bank account after that race? Because right. I suspect something happened. But I love Vinokurov. I mean, such an attacking rider. He 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 would definitely try to buy this race if he was in the uh, if he was in the open edition, the pro edition. And why and not? He, he runs a team too. He runs Astana, and he's racing a world championships. I mean, this is like. I can't imagine, I can't think of any other scenario where this has happened, where like a person who is running a professional team is then competing at a semi-professional level at the same time. I, I guess it's like Mario Lemieux owning the Penguins and then also playing for the Penguins um, for that brief period towards the end of his career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, Vinokurov never fails to do something interesting. I'm kind of digging through some of the names and the other age groups because I'm curious what the situation is here. I don't know if you're familiar with this writer, Spencer, but in men's 19 to 34, gosh, what an interesting age range. We have Mac Dorf of the United States, number 201. I am not familiar with, with Mac Dorf's writing. It looks like he's based in Vail and races for Lux Cycling. And so is this kind of the case where we have people who are domestic pros who are racing in age group races at the world championships? I guess. And are, are they, I was wondering about this too. Are they, are the men's 19 to 34? That is a strange group to have an age group for. Are they yeah, racing? Right? <laughs> I don't understand. I'm like, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. I'm befuddled by this. Right. Are they racing with, the main group or are they separate they're in a separate group i don't know how they're going to do this okay it looks like we have another writer in the men's 19 to 34 michael garrison and michael garrison was on oh no his brother was on quick step <laughs> i was like no this okay. is crazy but he might be younger and i know he was on Lux. okay so he was a hagen's berman's action writer in 2020 and Let's see. Maybe they're not okay. active professionals, so they can qualify for this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. In 2019, uh, Cat won two GC Crown at Tour of the Gila. I mean, yeah, overall title at Tour of the Labatibi. I'm saying that wrong. But yeah, so okay, he's kind of at the beginning of his career, domestic pro, it sounds like. Chapeau, hats off, Michael. Good luck in the 19 to 34, but... Yeah, this is a this is quite an interesting event. I mean, the UCI is, is doing something different here than they're doing in in other disciplines. And I guess jumping back to the pro men's field, I think part of the reason we have so many serious hitters showing up is I mean, winning a world championship in any discipline is a huge deal. And I think that a lot of these riders looked at this course and said, this is a relatively non-selective race. Why not? I've got a, I've got a shot at this. You know, whatever, I'll, I'll pop over there for the weekend and maybe I'll walk away with a rainbow jersey. That I'll, I'll never wear the rest of the year. No, it is like a big deal, I, I guess, um, to say you're world champion. I wonder if it like triggers things in their contract where it's like, if you win a world championship, you get a 1 million euro bonus. And it's like, you didn't specify which world championship it was. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And as you say, it's so non-selective. If you have 
professional level form, you could see this getting tactical towards the end. And yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys, like if you're Magnus Court Nielsen, your season's done. You know, this is the the last race you're going to do. So it's kind of like, why not do it? I get would be the the argument, especially if you weren't selected for Lombardi. You've got nothing else going on. I, I want to ask you about, so let's just say Matthew Vanderpool wins this race on Sunday. He's gravel world champion. It, is that like, is it a missed opportunity? Like could, let's say he wins the, the alternative universe is he wins Lombardi on Saturday um, instead. And he, he wins another monument, adds a monument to his Palmares. Is that a little bit of a, a missed opportunity to not be going for that? I mean, that's a big deal to win a monument. Maybe I'm a retro grouch. I'm just looking at things from like a, an, an old timey legacy standpoint. And like the new wave is all about gravel. Does it matter if you win Perry Roubaix? It matters if you win Unbound. But I don't know. How, how, would you consider a gravel world's win a bigger deal than a Lombardi win? Lombardi, it's a monument, but it's a minor monument. <laughs> minor. Well, just the, it is. There's only five monuments, so. But I mean, it, come on. It's like, is it Flanders? Is it Roubaix? No, no. So Flanders and Roubaix are definitely in a class of their own. I think that's more than fair. Um, in the something about the roots of those, the fact that they're selective, they're hard, but they're not so selective that they rule out anyone with their elevation gain is appealing. I'd say Liège is a minor, I mean, I, I would say Liège is a minor monument. Um, Lombardi, what's the fit now? I can't think of the, oh yeah, Milano San Remo. That's a fun one. We can't, we gotta love, you gotta love Milano San Remo. Um, definitely the most boring monument if you're aggregating all the racing together. Um, yeah, so I, there's five monuments. You'd say Lombardi is a minor monument, but that's that's a big deal. It'd be like saying like the Vuelta España is a minor grand tour but there's only three of them. It is a minor grand tour. We know it. We talked about it. I, I got to think that Lombardi's a bigger deal. Like if Tade Pogacar wins Lombardi and Vanderpool wins Gravel Worlds, Lombardi, it's, it, for serious, for people inside the sport, Lombardi's a bigger deal than Gravel Worlds. Here's the thing. Here's a hot take for you. What I think is about to happen here this is a, I said this at the beginning that I think that this is a crux moment in the history of the sport. It might sound silly, but I really do think that gravel worlds going forward is going to be a really big deal in cycling. And I think that the UCI professionalizing this, and I, we don't know for certain, but I think that this is going to be a good streaming experience. I think that they're going to go, do a good job televising this race and i think that these pros are going to realize wow this discipline is really taking off globally and if you look at this pairing of age group world championships with professional world championships part of what i think is going on here is the uci is trying to tap into part of what makes gravel awesome which is the pros and everyone else are out there on the same course and i wonder if they're thinking about hey Road racing in many parts of the world is completely dying off. Roads are getting more dangerous all the time. Drivers have never been more distracted. We need to find some kind of way to keep competitive cycling that's not mountain biking alive, and it's not road racing. 
this presents the opportunity to bring more people into the competitive side of the sport to inspire them. And if you have the very best athletes, and I know, Spencer, this is another thing you and I have talked about quite a bit, is that it's that formula of one model of having the very best riders at the very best races. That's how you get really compelling television, streaming, great storylines, great content. And that's what people want to see. And that's something that is kind of lacking in today's gravel monuments. You just get this mishmash of which pro has decided the world tour is too hard. So they're going to show up in Emporia, Kansas to try to win. Right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's fine. I'm not saying that to disparage anyone who's won that event because it's an incredibly hard event, but it's not the same as, Hey, you have the very best world tour riders showing up at the peak of their form and they're here to, to win the race. It's just not the same kind of thing. That's what we're actually going to see this weekend. I think the riders themselves might really like the format. And I mean, Strada Bianca, that's just a, a great example of we've seen a very similar format provide really compelling streaming experiences, a high level of competition, a lot of drama, and it could be the path forward for the sport. And if you think about mountain bike world championships, for example, a lot of, you know, if, if you were to ask someone who has some knowledge of competitive mountain biking, the pro side of the sport, who are the names that you associate with that? They're probably going to know Nino Schurter, but if they know something else, they might know that Ned Overend won the first cross-country world championships. If they knew that Greg Herbold won the first downhill mountain bike world championships, I would be surprised, but it's something that I remember because he was the first person to win a downhill mountain biking world championship. So yeah. I think being a, being a first in a new disciplines world championship, you're right. It's not a monument, but over time, this might be a direction that we see more and more world tour level talents going at the peak of their talent, not when they're more or less have given up on being a, an elite bike racer. Would you say, so let's just tackle Strada Bianchi. This is very similar to Strada Bianchi. The course is quite a bit easier. I think that's a super fun race. I, I, it's good. It's like a good kickoff to the classic season. I mean, it, it gets nowhere near the viewing numbers that like a Roubaix or a Flanders would get. It probably has superseded the semi-classics. Like think of Omlupet Newsblad, which is still a good race, or like Kern Bustles Kern. It's actually a much better race than Kern Bustles Kern, gets better viewing numbers, has superseded that. But will it ever be bigger than Flanders? Probably not, partially because it's too short and it doesn't quite, you don't quite get, and it's early in the season, so you don't quite get the best riders duking it out against each other like you would at a later monument. But like what happens here? So this is, let's just say it's 70% gravel, 30% road. What happens if like Lombardia in five years is just 50% gravel? Is that, I guess that's just like the future is everything just kind of slowly merges into some form of form of road gravel hybrid. Yeah. Well, we've seen more and more stages of major, you know, major week long and multi-week tours incorporating some form of unpaved roads whether that's cobbles as we saw at the tour this summer or 
in particular in the Vuelta Espana, we've seen a lot of gravel roads incorporated on finishing climbs. And that's because UCI wants to top it, tap into the popularity of gravel. Will we see more and more of it over time? I think it would probably be valuable if we saw more of a bifurcation and gravel went more deep into gravel and road cycling stayed more road cycling. Uh, but I think for the time being, they're going to keep combining the fighting styles. And I'm looking at the actual breakdown here in the men's and women's races. So in the women's race, 32% unpaved roads, 24% hard gravel, then 1% cobbles, 10% hard surface. I don't know how you, what that means relative to cobbles or hard gravel. And then 31% asphalt, that leaves them missing 2%. But that means about a little over half of the race is something that's unpaved. In the men's race, we have 36% unpaved roads, 18% hard gravel, 1% cobbles, 17% hard surface. If anyone knows what hard surface means uh, per the UCI. <laughs> like if you're ever on a gravel, I was just on some today where they're like, you're, you're not on a paved road, but it's not gravel. It's like, I guess like a dirt road that is packed so hard. It could almost feel like asphalt. I think that's what they mean. If I had to guess. Yeah. Like there's okay. no discernible gravel, but you're not on a paved road. You're on a hard packed, almost like mud road. Okay. I right. think that's, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm sure we can find the answer in the UCI rule book. We'll probably try to dig that up. But if you know the answer, <laughs> holler at us on Twitter. I'm at Hardway Pod. Spencer, you're BTP at BTP Cycling. Yeah. Holler at us. We'd love to hear your takes on what you think the difference between hard gravel and hard surfaces. Um, yeah, but what do you think, Spencer? Are we going to see gravel or unpaved surfaces incorporated into road races more frequently? I know riders have had a lot of feedback about this when it's happened, but what do you think, both from a spectating point of view as well as from a rider safety point of view? It's funny because every time it happens, I mean, Strada Bianchi, great race. Um, I'm thinking of like Grand Tour stages. Like think of the Strada Bianchi stage that Giroed last year. It's like one of my favorite stages I've watched in the last few years. But like riders hate it. Team managers hate it. A lot of European like cycling people inside the industry don't like it. Um, I think it's wonderful. I don't know if we'll see. I don't know. I guess on one hand, as you say, bifurcation would be helpful where like Gravel routes are gravel's job. You don't have to turn the Tour de France into a gravel race because there'll be a gravel race to do that. But I, I do think we'll see a little bit more and more gravel incorporated into, into road, road cycling. But I mean, we, we're already seeing it. Think of uh, the finish. I think it was stage seven, stage eight. Up, It was the first summit finish of the Tour this year where like the last kilometer was on gravel. I thought that was awesome. So the way it's going... Maybe what I'm saying is extreme, where Lombardy is 50% gravel in, in five years. But I, I do think we'll see a little bit of creep. You know, they'll start to pick the best gravel bits and put them into road racing. I think the concern is you don't want, especially in stage racing, you don't want someone to lose the tour because they flat on a gravel road and can't get right. a wheel change. I'd, I'm of like two minds about that. I mean, part of that is racing, and it adds like a little bit of unpredictability. Maybe you race a little less formulaic because you know you might flat in the third week and you need to build up 
a lead while you have it to protect against that. So I don't know. I don't think we'll see. I think me saying Lombardi is 50% gravel in five years is not going to happen, but we'll see a little bit more and more. If this is a success, I guess that's where it gets interesting. If this outranks this, it won't happen. But if more people watch this than watch Lombardi on Saturday, Lombardia would come back next year and say, we're a gravel race. Um, but Perry Tour shows the danger of that. They pivoted to gravel and now their lunch is getting eaten by gravel worlds. Like who's going to watch Perry Tours on Sunday when you could just watch better racers race a similar course that's backed by the UCI? So, and, and that raises a bunch of odd things. Like why is the UCI competing against, why are they promoting races and by promoting i mean like owning putting on the race against professional races who are also sanctioned by the uci that doesn't make a ton of sense to me but yeah i don't know if perry tours had stayed its original race maybe it's not as susceptible just to be to being disrupted by gravel like what's going to happen on sunday if you had to put on your matthew vanderpool skin suit Let's talk a little bit about how he's going to approach this race. Does he actually have the intent to go in there and just destroy everyone? Are we going to see Vanderpool the fighter? Or are we going to see Vanderpool in the black underwear being a horrible human being and doing something bad? Like, what's going to go down? Uh, hopefully both. But um, I don't know. You'd think uh, it's kind of my just my gut feeling. I have, like, no data to back this up. I think we see him maybe a little off his best. You know, it's been not an easy two weeks for him. He flew to Australia, right. really crapped the bed at the World Championships, with which must have been a major, major. Uh, uh, I don't know the the goal for him for the season, and now he's flown back. I mean, a win here would, would start to right the ship a little bit, but. I don't know. I don't think we're going to see him at his best. That That's just my feeling. And there's a lot of good riders here. Uh, if he's even slightly off his best, he's not going to be able to win this thing. What, what, what do you think? I, I'm thinking about this more. I'm thinking if I'm Canyon, I want Matthew Vanderpool to win the world championship on our bike. It probably goes without saying, but I think that uh, marketing is definitely one of the motivators for all of the the equipment sponsors, just because there are so many people out there participating in gravel right now. And like, who wouldn't want their bike to be the bike that people associate with world championship winning efforts, similar to the specialized tarmac, you know, almost being like the stock car of world tour cycling. Cause over the years, so many world champions and stage winners have been on their bikes. They're just like, they're ubiquitous, it seems, when it comes to podiums. So I think that's part of it. I thought it was, uh, it's, it's kind of struck me as bizarre in the coverage of Vanderpool doing this event and his preparation for the event that he stated he'd never ridden a gravel bike before. It sounded like he had, he'd never like taken his cyclocross bike off the, <laughs> off the course and like cruised down a gravel road. And I know that Canyon, they have their cross bike and their gravel bike. They have two gravel bikes, but they're different bikes. But I was like, wow, really? Like you've never, it's never, it sounded like you'd never even been out on a training ride on a gravel road. So that kind of struck me. I think he's there to win. I think he feels 
aggrieved. I think that he wants to show that he's still a champion rider. I mean, just think about Matthew Vanderpool relative to Wout a year ago. And we saw these riders as generational talents. And it almost feels like Matthew Vanderpool has now been eclipsed. At least that's the feeling that I have just looking at his season, how it panned out, and then the rise of riders like Remco, Tade, all, all these younger riders coming up now, Jai. And, you know, I think he's lost some of his luster. His character is damaged. His reputation is damaged, at least globally. I don't know what it's like in his home country. And I think that he has a lot of motivations to win this race. Equally, I look at Sagan, and I think Sagan might really, really want to win this race too. And I'm curious if he has the form. He was, of course, incredibly strong at world championships. We talked about this in the world's debrief. But he's a rider who I think is carrying the form, has a massive salary, specialized, has a very vested interest from a marketing point of view of him winning on their bike. So I think he's going to be a highly motivated rider as well. And he has Daniel Oss there, who, you know, ostensibly you're not competing with your trade teammates in these races, but we also know how this actually goes down in practice. Oh, yeah. Oss is working for Sagan. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, come on. Give me a give me a break. But I mean, what do you think? Do you think Sagan's has a shot at this? I definitely think he could win it. I was blown away with how good it seventh place at a world championships with what did we say? 4,000 meters of climbing. Yeah, that's that's borderline Sagan of old. I mean, not really Sagan of old because he a, would have won this. He would have been where Laporte was, maybe even where Remco was. But that's hard. I mean, you have to be in incredible shape to finish in the front group at a race like that. The fact that this, I mean, this course actually plays to his strengths a lot. Um, doesn't It's not enough climbing for a smaller rider to get rid of him. If it comes down to a bunch sprint, he's got to feel pretty confident. It's, I actually said it was, I said the wrong distance. It's 220 kilometers, not 200. So it's going to take a little bit of the edge off the sprint. So if it's a little bit of a slower sprint, that's better for him. He could definitely win it. Someone I that kind of sticks out to me is Davide Ballerini. Uh, Rider number 59, he just won. The name of the race escapes me. It's like one of these seemingly endless run of Italian races that happens over the course of the two weeks before Lombardia. But he is really strong right now, really high-quality rider. And the fact that he's not one of the big names, if it gets tactical at the end, that, that could really help him. But with Vanderpool, could that be true that he did? he's never ridden on a gravel road? I, I don't know what he's... I. Now that you mentioned it, I did see on Strava, he maybe did like a 200-kilometer ride on, what's the canyon gravel bike called? The Grizzle. The Grizzle, yeah, where he like took the Grizzle out. So maybe that's, I don't know. That kind of seems like some marketing to me where he's like, I've never ridden gravel before. Let me get on this bike and see how I do. Um, I think I think he'll be fine, even if he has never been gravel riding before. He's done quite a bit of off-road yeah. riding in his in his life. Yeah, I think he'll be okay. What do you think about Greg Van Avermaet, uh, the golden man? What do you think about his appearance on the start list? Did you notice that? I did. That was that was one of the ones that stuck out to me the most because he's done Lombardia like five times, never finished outside. Maybe he's finished outside the top 20 once. So the fact that he's at Gravel Worlds like, probably shows us, A, that he's thinking, oh, maybe my best climbing years are behind me. But think of that Olympics he won in 2016. And he seemingly held that title for 45 years. 
But that was a tough course. That's actually similar to Lombardia. The fact that he's at gravel worlds instead was a little surprising to me. I don't, I don't, I don't totally understand it. But as you say, it's a, it's a world championships. If he wins a world championships, that you know that doesn't totally make up for his lackluster year, but it it helps, you know. And maybe he thinks, oh, I'm not going to beat Tadej Pogacar at Lombardia, but I could win gravel worlds. I'll give it a shot. I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he can, I, unless, unless people are seeing something I haven't seen from him for the last year and a half. I, I don't think he can do it. Yeah. And Zdenek Stibar is, you know, multi-time cyclocross world champion and didn't pick up a world tour contract for 2023. Sounds like he's going to be going the quote unquote privateer route. He's going to mix road racing and off-road racing in 2023 kind of in the swan song phase of his career, but you know, it's like serious, serious hitter and someone with serious off-road capabilities who's going to be really comfortable on this course. You think he's going to be a factor? I, I'm, I'm actually surprised he didn't get a contract. This is a guy who got second at Pei Roubaix in 2017. He won the Bink Bank Classic in 2019. I mean, that's like kind of a joke, but that's a hard race. The fact that he won the overall at that race, or no, won a state, sorry, stage of that race in 2019. Um, no, I am confusing that race. That, but e, that's the E3 Bink Bank Classic is a really hard one day race. He won that in 2019. Is out of it. Are we sure he's out of a contract or is he going to bike exchange in 2023? Did that just. He might have just signed a contract with them. Okay. Okay. I may have misspoken. I just know that he's going to have, he's going to be on that like Lachlan Morton, Alex Howes program where where he's he's mixing on and off road. I mean, I think from a marketing point of view, a lot of these, you know, Alex Howes and Lachlan Morton have kind of been on that program for a while, which I think is a really. It's been yet, you know, yet another really smart marketing move from EF, who I think has some of the best use of its uh, resources from a storytelling and marketing point of view of all teams in world tour cycling. So maybe that's uh, maybe that's what's going on with Stebar. Yeah, Stebar. I don't know. I'd like to see him do well, but he's not had a good year. I have a hard time believing he could find the form at the last minute. And it's like, all due respect, I agree with, I definitely agree with you about EF having a fantastic marketing effort around their off-road pursuits. A, I don't, I don't understand why don't they employ Alex Howes and Lachlan Morton? I don't understand why they're on the world tour roster. They should just employ those guys to do races like this because they certainly needed those rust. Like they could have used people that actually compete in the world tour events this year. I mean, they, they barely escape relegation, but like, especially Alex Howes, I mean, this is, he's like the type of writer that we're maybe talking about, like he would have been able to grab dominant gravel five years ago, but you know, if he was in this race, he would not be playing a part. I mean, it's just getting so competitive where even Stebar, I think it's hard to imagine that a writer is going to Stebar that we're saying like, no, I don't think he's going to play a part, or at least I don't. Do you think he's going to be a factor on Sunday? Has a puncher's chance. I put him in the same category as GVMA. Yeah, yeah, G- I think GVA rather. To, yeah, to lump them together. I mean, even yeah. though I, I'm, I'm curious to see like Ivar Skilk. I'm probably butchering this poor man's name, but clearly incredible form. 
to win unbound. And then I'm curious to see what, what he can do against more like traditional road talent um, instead of just gravel talent. So I, I'm curious to see how he does. I mean, there's a lot of like Johnny Vermeesh, very good rider, is also in this race. Carlos Verona, Lawrence Nassen, who's on AG2R, I believe. I mean, these are really good riders in here. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, it's also a fun thing about world championships because this route's never happened before. We don't really know how it's going to play out and it makes it really hard to predict. Is it going to be tactical at the end? Is it going to be just one guy riding away like we saw at the road world championships? Just a lot of unknowns. The thing that's on my mind right now is what happens if a world tour team decides to kind of show up at an event like unbound or like let's let's not just say one team let's say we get let's we get like 10 or 15 legit world tour pros at the peak of their career go over and do unbound are they going to find that to be a difficult race do you think spencer i you've you've done it i have not i've done i've done the 100 i haven't done the 200 and i'd never want to i have no interest I mean, in doing a bike race that lasts that long personally at race pace they're doing it like correct me if I'm wrong and like close to eight hours. Right. Right. Which is crazy. Cause I think the first one was like an 18 hour winning time. You know, if there, if there was, let's say 20 world tour riders, current peak fitness, 20 world tour riders, they'd be doing that in seven and a half hours, which is not that much different than the recent world championships or Paris Roubaix. So, and I probably about on par with Milano San Remo. So I don't actually clearly like the conditions and the route and not having a team car would probably be a big, a big struggle and a bit different, but just the straight time over power effort would probably not be like above and beyond what they're used to. I think that we're going to see the scenario within the next two years. The only thing is, so it's at a tricky time. It's like, let's say first weekend of June. So if you're really, really good, you're probably doing the Tour de France. Gives you around three weeks before the tour. I guess you can, I, yeah, I guess if you're okay with the travel, you could get back in time for your tour prep. Um, it just also means you're not doing, you're probably not doing the Dauphiné or Switzerland, but you know, you could just go straight to an altitude training camp and, you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be that disruptive for your, your build up to the tour, but what would they be gaining by doing that? Let's just throw a name out. Let's say Wout Van Aert before the tour next year is at unbound trying to win. Like, what is he gaining by winning that? At this point in time, maybe not much. I think I'm thinking more like somebody who's on the classic squad. They're not going to the tour. Spring is their focus. They have a really big spring and then they're not targeting the tour and, but the, whatever. So they have, they have a time slot. They have that gap they're, They don't have to worry about the travel, the wear and tear. So they're going to show up. So I guess that would put them probably like a step below of the very, very best in the sport because the people who are typically are the very best classics writers are also going to the tour. I don't know. Maybe you can. I'm kind of at a loss here. I'm trying to think. Well, of I, I found your guy, though. Gianni okay. Vermeesh, seventh at Tour of Flanders in 2021. There we go. Did yeah. not do the Tour de France this year. That That is the type of guy. I, I'm on board now with your, right. with your idea that he could show up with 10 other similar riders at Unbound right. and 
I don't know. Do you think it would be an automatic win for them? Now, now I'm not so sure that they would just crush it. It might. I mean, luck plays a much bigger role in gravel than it does in other disciplines of cycling. Just like I said, scenarios all the time where you're just you're in a pace line going 25 miles an hour, eating cow dust, coming up off the road, somebody moves, and oh, like there's a giant hole in front of you. And so those are the things that could be confounding variables that you can't control. All other things being equal, I think that they'd go there and destroy the field. I guess Ivar Stilk, Skilk kind of proved. Sl- slick. 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 You're right. His name is Slick. I hope he's riding Slicks this weekend, but he kind of proves that theory right he's probably never been to kansas before certainly never ridden that route before just has the engine to win it and he shows up and wins and then there's versions you know there's evar's 3.0 in the form of gianni vermish so yeah they probably would do some damage i mean think of even ian boswell fantastic rider um super talented was on team sky like ian boswell four years out of retirement just is not going to have the same level of fitness. His engine is not the same as a current world tour cyclist. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at uh, Ivar Slick's pro cycling stats, and he did ride the 2014 Road World Championships. It looks like he was riding for Rabobank at that time. Most recently, he was on a UCI Continental team, so pretty mid level pro for Europe, but relative to the U.S. domestic scene, except for probably three to five riders, he's at a he's just at a higher level, right? Yeah, like I'll, I was just going through like Gage Hex road race results. Like, do you know Gage is a super talented cross rider, yeah. like one of the best American cross riders? He won a stage of the Colorado Classic on the road a few years ago. I mean, he goes over to Europe and like can barely compete, you know. And he, when you race against him, you're like, oh, this guy must be one of the best cyclists in the world. And Ivar Slick shows like what's happened. I mean, Ivar is just mid pack in mid level races and European road races. And like, that's just how deep the competition is there. It's like they're copy and pasting America's best cyclist 5,000 times. And that's how deep the competition is and why you can just come over and win one of our hardest gravel races. We should point out we're talking about gravel. This is like big for gravel. Was the first Tour de France not a gravel race? I believe that was like all these big road races we're talking about originally were just raced on gravel roads before asphalt was invented. So maybe this is just a return to the roots of road, road cycling. Could be. And so we've been dancing around it. Who's your pick for Sunday? I'm going with Sagan. Like it. Wow. Yeah, I think he has I think he has the form, he has the ambition, and paradoxically, he has the spirit of gravel. I mean, Sagan's tagline is why so serious. You know, Spencer, before we recorded today, I sent you over something that makes me laugh pretty hard every time I watch it, which is Scott Stapp, the lead singer of Creed. He has a song that he composed for the Florida Marlins called Marlin Soar. Something about that reminds me of it just reminds me of Peter Sagan and his why so serious attitude, why so serious and 
why so serious when you have what a six million euro contract and you're 35 you need to win a race so i think that uh it's time for peter sagan to win a race to substantiate the massive salary he had this year even though he had covid what nine times yeah, he's currently getting it again. <laughs> I guess the irony of that is he he's going to be so serious. I I bet he this is like the most serious he's ever taken a race. I bet he shows up unbelievably dialed in because as you say, like this is in his wheelhouse and he hasn't really had a good season. He's got to get a win. Another question I'll lob to you is so let's say Sagan wins this. It's is a national team event. Is total energy is kind of like uh that sucks because you're not racing for us or do you think specialize is providing the, the bulk of that six million year contract and they're just happy that he's winning on their bikes yeah my gut is that specializes underwriting a large portion of his contract i think they're going to be thrilled with anything that sagan does they might even make you know he made that grease parody video a couple of years ago where he danced maybe we'll see grease 2.0 if he wins the uh, the Gravel World Championships. I also expect that if he does win Gravel Worlds, yes, he's going to continue to road race, but I think we'll see him move into a mixed calendar next year. I mean, he's indicated that he's ready to kind of go into world tour retirement is the vibe that I get, but he still wants to collect that five yeah. and a half, six million euro <laughs> contract. Like who wouldn't? It's like, hey, you know what? Actually, I don't really want to compete 70 times a year. I want to go do these six races in the United States and drink pale ales afterwards with people wearing neckerchiefs and uh, ride wheelies. I think that that's what he would like to do in 2023. If he puts points on the board and stands on top of the podium this weekend, I think that he's opening the door to, you know, a Jens Voigt like uh, victory lap in the United States for the next five to 10 years. I actually completely disagree with you. I think if he wins this, he's thinking, I've got another Roubaix or Flanders win in me. And he goes for that. I, I think he, if he wins this, I think he kind of comes back renewed in 2023 for kind of like a true last hurrah on the road. Cause it's just been so miserable on the road recently. I, it just, it's hard. It's hard to imagine a guy that's that good. That was that prolific in his prime would kind of peter out, especially if he wins, he's, he's, clearly very good still i don't know i think he's got something left i think he could stick around on the road for a year or two more to try to win one more one more monument i mean maybe it doesn't mean anything to him but it's i think i think it matters but and and that's what matters what i think so peter please stick around um i kind of like I kind of like Johnny Vermeesh now that we were he's stuck in my head now that we've been talking about him i think we could see kind of an outsider win here Someone that's not one of the pre-race favorites, like Davide Ballerini or Johnny Vermeesh, and I'm picking Vermeesh seventh at Flanders. That that's a serious ride. I think I think he's going to come out on top. Especially, I predict it getting a little tactical towards the end. So that's I think I think you're going to open Cycling News early Sunday morning and say, "Who's that? Who's who? Who won Gravel World Championships? I've never heard of this guy before." Yeah, it could be. And I'm thinking about Vanderpool and that comment about like, I've never ridden on, I've never ridden a gravel bike. I've never ridden on gravel roads. I've, it's had this like Drago like perception of Vanderpool. He's almost like lab grown meat. You know, he's just like, he's just, he's just a machine. The machine's going to be on gravel this weekend. And I think he wants this for all the reasons that Sagan wants it, which we got into earlier. 
I just don't think that he's going to be able to execute. I think you're right, Spencer. I think he's he's distracted. He's struggling. He's got a lot to think about. To be honest, I'm a little surprised he's here. Uh, it makes me wonder why he's here. Is this just pressure from Canyon? Because I assume they pay the bulk of his salary, like Sagan was specialized. I mean, that's just to, to injure, to A, have such a poor second half of the season the way he did. And I think you're right that he's been eclipsed by Van Aert and certainly eclipsed by Remco Evenepoel at this point. That you think you just want to be like, I'm going on vacation. I'll see you guys next year. I don't want to talk to anyone the rest of the year. So I, I'm a little surprised he's here, but maybe that means he's just that motivated. Spencer, do you have any inside track on what is going on with Vanderpool and the team? Because reading the team's comments through their publicist or spokesperson, sounds like he's in a bit of like a timeout situation. It sounds like they're still evaluating whether there'll be further disciplinary action. Or was that just a placeholder statement and they're just going to let this, hopefully, from their point of view, are they just going to let these media cycles pass and see what happens? Or do you think there's genuine beef there? I don't know if there's beef. It's kind of convenient for them because, you know, Lombardi's 5,000 meters of climbing. Maybe he thinks that's too hard. He's not going to do another race for the team anyway if he's not doing Lombardi. So... It's yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he's really in trouble with the team. I mean, he's so important to that team. He could go to any almost any team in the Peloton. You'd think I, I don't I don't think there's beef there. I think it's just kind of a statement that makes them look like they're maybe taking a tough stand, but aren't actually sacrificing anything in reality. I I wouldn't I wouldn't read into that. I, I I'm a little surprised actually he's still there. Are, are is that are you surprised at all? I mean it's it's a second division team. I think they're going to the first division for next year. And maybe that's perfect for him because he gets to be the big star. He never has to work for a GC. The fact they don't have a GC rider is is amazing for him. So maybe I'm answering my own question there, but I can't imagine he's not he's probably not making five or six million euros like Peter Sagan. At some point, same thing with Remco that we talked about last week, he's gonna want to get paid what he thinks the market is valuing him at. So if he, if he leaves, I don't think it's because the team's disciplining him. I think it's because he wants to get paid more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're right. And I mean, maybe right now the balance of, as you said, just getting to be the big fish in the relatively smaller pond is that's what he wants. He wants more control. He doesn't want to be told what to do at all. He maybe doesn't want to deal with the expectations that come with big money. I mean, he's making big money, but seriously big money. Yeah, I get uh, Now you're kind of selling me. Yeah, just do what you ever, whatever you want to do. No one tells you what to do. So the race you're not going to watch Saturday, Lombardi, who, went, who do you think is going to win that? It's a downhill finish, and their Alejandro Valverde is here. Last race of his career. I don't think it's going to be Alejandro Valverde. I'm going to have to think about this for a minute. Who's your pick? Uh, I feel like we keep going back to the well with them, but uh, Tadej Pogacar. I mean, at some point, we have to be right with the Pogacar pick. He looked pretty good. He got dropped. I don't know. No, I'm sure no one saw this because it wasn't televised in the U.S., but he was dropped by Enric Moss last weekend at an uphill finish Italian classic race. Great ride from Moss. Um, shows that he's like unlocking, finally unlocking his potential in ways that he wasn't able to before. But 
he uh, people were kind of like calling him washed and saying, "Oh, he stinks now." But that was six days after the World Championships in in Australia, so you should remember that he did a really really hard race, a seven hour race, flew across the world, got off the plane, and then did a race where he finished second behind a flying Intercomas. Um, a lot of people read that negatively. I thought that was positive that he could be that strong after that hard of a week. And then he did win a race on Tuesday out of a bunch finish ahead of Valverde actually, and Sergio Higuita. So if this thing comes down to any sort of sprint, as we saw at Montreal, uh, I'm going with Pogacar. Wow. I'm, I'm cruising through the start list right now. I'm intrigued by so many names on this start list. I think we talked about this, but Miguel Angel Lopez is going to be in this race and he's going to be racing Sunday. I'm yeah. wondering if he's actually, I'm wondering if he's actually going to start um, on Saturday. I suppose he will. And it would be weird if he didn't start the race that suited him. And then did right. Gravel worlds. I would. I, yeah. I, I'm actually, I'm not quite sure what's going on. I wonder who's their sponsor. Villiers is the Astana sponsor, right? It's kind of those beautiful blue bikes. I, and their headquarters is, I'm just now piecing this together as I say it, their headquarters is right by where the Gravel Worlds is. So that might be some type of sponsor agreement that he has to go and do that on Sunday. Okay. I feel like Enios is desperate. I'm trying, do you see anybody on Enios you think has a snowball's chance on Saturday? I do. Yeah. I do. Okay. Uh, Danny Martinez, normally I would like him. Um, not a great descender and this is a downhill finish. I think he's like one of the most talented riders in the world who for some reason is like almost worse on Ineos than he would be on another team. But Adam Yates, if he didn't go to Worlds, he was flying in Canada, like unbelievably right. strong. I think he could win this thing. Okay. I'm going to go with um, this will seem insane. I'm going with Mate Mahorish. That's not insane. That's a really good pick. He, he himself... Uh, said it's insane to pick him. He doesn't consider himself a favorite, but he was, I actually just watched a, a like a sprint race today where he got second, looked extremely sharp. Um, right. I think he could definitely win. The guy can climb. He can climb a lot better than people think. Down, right. Obviously, downhill finishes pretty good, as we saw at Milano San Remo. And he's, he's, in, he's on form, so good pick. And then before we go, I mean, just do you think like I'm just now remembering Milano San Remo, which I think is one of the most boring right. monuments. But that finish was so electric because road cycling as a way of like the increased speed and keeping riders together. I mean, would you be like if you were running cycling, like your czar of cycling, or you like get rid of road cycling, it's all gravel? Um, or do you think there is a place for like those hyper exciting ends of races with 30 riders competing to get down a descent first and then sprinting for the win like do you do you find that exciting or would you rather rather all be gravel racing <laughs> no i both <laughs> yes yes and i love all forms of bike racing i just i want them to be selective and that's my aspiration over time for gravel racing is that the courses produce a selective result that's actually challenging versus uh, with a relative level of parity of talent. And I don't think that we've seen that yet. We're about to see it this weekend, which is exciting. And yeah, I mean, I love Milan San Remo in 2022. Seeing 
Mohoric hit that dropper post. It was I felt like I was playing the video game Spy Hunter in 1983 again, and somebody had just put an oil slick down. <laughs> but that, you know, that was an exciting moment. It was just so unexpected. It was like the the first time the Fosbury flop was used in high jumping. It was just uh, it was a pivotal moment, and it's also that was an example of a very risky dangerous finish but it was because of the riders taking chances not because of road furniture or garbage course design or barrier feet protruding in the wrong direction at the finish i like watching that level of risk taking that was exciting and i'll watch that all day and i'll continue to watch road racing even if it's i think dying or completely dead in the united states for a variety of reasons yeah, uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to get to that, but we don't have time. But I, I think to sum it up, I mean, gravel racing in the United States, at least, is the future. I mean, I, I'm not like a gravel bug by any means. I love road racing. I think for the U.S., the, the series of challenges in the United States, like gravel racing is is where it's at. As we saw with the Maryland Cycling Classic, it just does not pop on the road here for, for whatever reason. But you you throw a gravel race in a seemingly random lo- location like Emporia, Kansas, and like you have to turn people away. So it kind of seems like the market's telling us stateside that that's the way we should go. And I'm totally fine with that. I mean, I love I love road racing like more than anything. But I also think Europe just tends to be better for it. So I'm fine watching my Milano San Remo in Europe and then gravel racing reigning supreme in the United States. So I I, I like both, just like you. Um, I did have a former decision maker in the sport like tell me after that uh, Matty Motorich descent, like this is disgusting. Like he could have killed someone with that dropper post that finishes. They should get rid of downhill finishes in road cycling. But I don't think anyone's ever been seriously hurt on that downhill finish. As you said, it's it's like stupid course design or barriers feet protruding that causes people to get really injured, not consistent curvy descents into a finish like if riders know what's coming if it's a natural turn of the road they're probably going to be fine it's the fact that when you turn a corner and there's a bank like a bank is in the course like at crow race that's a problem yeah we have i mean we've seen riders die during descents and races fabio casertelli of course and you know a number of other right i'm thinking of joseba Baloki his injury in the tour that of course was because of yeah, you could guitar, argue right that that should have been that was like an unsafe racing condition right because the it was so yeah. hot that the road was melting obviously yeah fabio castrotelli dying is not good and uh is there there are risks of descents but you know since obviously you could always crash on the, a descent but there's probably less of a chance of like a massive like, a, you know, think of, uh, do you remember like the Mets massacre where it was like a flat tour stage and someone was like taking their leg warmers off? I don't know why this is a thing now. People like take their shoes off 15 times a race or they're like taking leg warmers off in the middle of the Peloton and like 50 riders went down because that person crashed while they were trying to do that. Like those type of mass domino crashes don't tend to happen on the sense as much. Thankfully. Yeah, that would that would not be good. But yeah, stop taking your shoes off, people. I don't know what's going on. When did this get cool? They've like just let's change suit shoes a bunch of times. I have to ask Spencer, have you seen anyone on a group ride in Boulder take their shoes off 
because it's been done in the world tour and I know, but only because you wouldn't without the team car, you're kind of in a tough spot. If you're trying to change, you'd have to have shoes stuff in your pocket. There, there is a group ride, I think in Boulder that does have like a follow car. Now that I think about it. <laughs> so it could, could happen on that. You, you never know. Uh, before we go, I got to ask you laces or, or, or boa straps. I, I, did you see this at the world championships where someone had lace up cycling shoes, which, which I've never understood. They come untied and you're in a real tough spot because you can't get both hands down there to retie your shoes. And the rider was like trying to jam their laces into their shoe. Like, are you a laces on your cycling shoe guy? I'm not. And I also, if I can avoid it, I avoid boa as well. I don't know if you've saw this last cyclocross season, but there was a really, gosh, uh, I love Shimano products and I use a lot of their gear, including their shoes. I, have, I run Shimano on all my bikes, but boy, they've had a rough couple of years. Last cyclocross season, there was a huge problem at the pro level with pros using the Shimano, I guess, mountain bike shoes that were dual boa dial. They kept just completely releasing in the middle of races, like the blow, the boa dial would blow up. And um, I've experienced that on other brand shoes. I really prefer old school, just Velcro and a ratchet strap, just something more mechanical and simple. Uh, boa, you know, it gives you a nice, more of a custom feel, but I just don't find it to be highly reliable over time. What about you? Interesting. I'm all boa. I'm like heavily invested in boa just personally, all my shoes boa. Now I'm worried about them just blowing up on me. The only thing about Velcro is it just wears out over time. I, it's like, I've had like wonderful shoes that are Velcro shoes, but it's, I just feel like at a certain point it doesn't stick down. It's like a whole problem. You need to go to your cobbler, Spencer, your local cobbler. I, can I do. Yeah. Velcro. <laughs> I have to get down there to replace that Velcro. Actually wouldn't be, would be a very cheap fix if you had the capability to do that. But I'll let, I'll let everyone get on their way and get excited for their, the gravel race. We all need to probably start getting to bed early so we can get up really early on Sunday morning and catch however much of this race that they're televising. But do you have anything to add before we take off, Andrew? Support your local cobbler. Why so serious? Exactly. And yeah, easy to say why so serious when you're making 6 million euros a year on your brand of not being serious. But um, I like your pick of Sagan. I think you could win this race. I'm excited to watch it. We will talk to everyone next week after Peter Sagan is Gravel World Champion. Ride safe. All right. Bye.